right, well, welcome to another episode of Tell Me More. My name is Luke Stair, and I've got Dr. Wiles with me here in the studio. Katie could not be with us this morning, but we are here having a great discussion about Advent, eschatology, and atonement. There are some big $5 theology words for you today, so buckle up, and we hope you have a great time. We are in the studio. I almost said live in the studio, but no one's going to watch this live. Um, Addison. Addison will watch this live. Addison is our wonderful videographer yes, on our is. church She's staff. She's watching it live. And uh, if you have been enjoying any video that you've seen at our church, mm-hmm. you can thank the wonderful Addison. That is exactly right. Mitchell. Homegrown. Mm-hmm. That's right. We, so. we did videos today. I've been with her all morning. So here we are. Here we are. And so Katie's, Katie's not with us today. Yeah. Katie, you know, you had stage fright last week. She has it this week. What is it? Uh, oh, it's also called young children who get sick, or you get sick. One of yes. the two, right? <laughs> it, we feel bad. Katie's not feeling well today. It so. goes around. <laughs> so, but we do miss her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm happy to be back. We're glad it's to have to be you. back. Awesome. So we are in our first week of Advent That's at right. First Baptist, which mm-hmm. is always a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, I love seeing all the decorations. I know everyone enjoys seeing those too. Did you grow up? In your church, did y'all have Advent in your church or your I home did. when you were growing up? And you'll appreciate this. I grew up in a Baptist church in Alabama until I was eight. So there yeah. were large wooden platforms covered yeah. in poinsettias. They right. were, you know, 15 feet tall of poinsettias course. all the way up. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, did y'all light lights. Advent candles at of your church? Of course we did. Yeah. So See, we didn't do that when I was growing up. I grew up with church. it. It's normal to me, but I know yeah. it's not normal. No. To everyone, no. um, I, my wife and I also went to an Anglican church for three years in Kansas. wasn't yeah. a good Baptist home for us there, yeah. and they so, obviously do Advent. True. In our church, you could only light candles when the power went out. That was kind of how it worked. Okay. <laughs> so they were so scared of doing anything <laughs> that smacked of Roman Catholicism, <laughs> you know. And uh, my dad even referred to the nativity set as figurines. He didn't even yes. he didn't even want them in the house. That's how my dad was. Which if you didn't <laughs> know, nativity sets are something of Catholic origin. Uh, St. Francis, Saint Francis invented right. the first nativity. <laughs> right. Um, so I think they date back, was he the 15, 1400s? Yeah, somewhere in there, yeah. But, uh, but daddy just, you know, we just didn't do it. So when we, when Cindy and I got married, um, let's see, um, I'm trying to remember what church it was. I guess it was in Garland. We'd pastored a couple of small churches and um, but anyway, we ended up in Garland at Calvary Baptist. Well, that whole church had an Advent season where they lit Advent candles, you know, with an Advent wreath in the sanctuary mm. on Sunday morning. And then individuals in their homes had Advent wreaths. And so we had not really done that, I guess. Maybe it was in Tyler. I can't remember. One of those two churches, we started with an Advent uh, wreath in our home for the first time with our children. And, um, and maybe it was Tyler now that I think about it. But anyway, um, so that was that was our first experience. I didn't grow up with it, and uh, but once I found that tradition, I love it. I love that I uh, imagery of of you know Jesus being the light of the world, and so you go from darkness to light, and the anticipation builds, you know, every week, and, um, and then finally you light all the candles and light the Christ candle, and you know, and fully celebrate. Mm-hmm. The, um, the fact that he is the light of the world. So I, I love it. It's been, I mean, the Advent celebration, what's early 400s? I can't remember. I think that's about Somewhere it. Somewhere in there. Um, and, um, and so, which to me, from my historical perspective, predates the Roman Catholic Church. I, I would put the Roman I would Catholic agree with Church you. somewhere around Pope Gregory is probably what I'd say. 
600s, get in, get in that era after the fall of Rome and all that. Um, so this was just a, it was just what the church was doing, trying to figure out how to celebrate the birth of Jesus. So yeah. I, I love the Advent season. I love the preparation. Well, I think there was something genius in that early church. They recognized that these symbols, these visual cues actually mm -hmm. have a way of teaching us theology. Right. They have a way of guiding us mm -hmm. through mm -hmm. space and time and mm -hmm. helping point us to Christ. Right. And I think for Protestants, I mean, Luther would have celebrated Advent. The earliest reformers mm -hmm. celebrated Advent. That's right. There was a move, and I'm making an educated statement here, but <laughs> the details may be off. But there's a move kind of around the time that the Enlightenment hits, kind of 1700s, 1600s, where some Protestants started kind of stripping away mm -hmm. symbols. And right. some take that to the extreme. So Quakers Correct. use no religious symbols of any kind, no mm -hmm. baptism, no Lord's Supper, nothing, no right. imagery. Mm -hmm. Baptists don't go that far, but right. they were a part of that kind of move mm -hmm. to kind of not mm -hmm. use as many symbols. And mm -hmm. I think it was because they... There was a fear of people would worship the symbols instead of Correct. God That's himself. Right. I think the same is true for Easter season. You know, obviously, <laughs> you can imagine the church in which I was reared. If you didn't do Advent, you <laughs> for sure didn't do Lent. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I grew up with Advent. I did not grow up with yeah. Lent. Yeah, the Easter season, in, uh, and I, and again, I'm not poking fun. I mean, it's, it's just the truth that Easter season in the church in which I was raised was was a week long. It was, it was uh, Palm Sunday. And Easter Sunday. And on, Jesus got crucified on Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, the preacher always preached on the crucifixion. And uh, and then, of course, Easter Sunday. You didn't have a Good Friday service, and you, you for sure didn't have any kind of ash winds. You didn't have anything that began with ash. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, as I've gotten older, um, again, I liked, you know, Jesus gave us the symbols of, of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I think you're right. The early church was trying to figure out how to instruct and guide people through these holy days. And, and their calendars were filled with celebrations and markings of holy days. Yeah, well, and, they were in a society, a pagan society, yeah. that was full of holy days, right. full of processions and symbols right. and rituals. Mm -hmm. So, And I think they were trying to figure out how do we take a ritualistic people and shape them Exactly into mm -hmm. Christ's image, and I and I think here at, at First Baptist to me, I mean naturally I'm in on it, so <laughs> I like what we do. <laughs> I like the way we've struck kind of a a middle way, if you will, where we for us Lent and Easter is a time to prepare ourselves, and we do begin the season on Ash Wednesday in repentance, and which is is a, is, is an ancient practice. I mean that's an Old Testament practice if mm -hmm. you think about it. And then, um, and then I like the um, the journey to Bethlehem uh, for the season of Advent. So um, I love this season of the year. It's it's one of my favorite times for us. And uh, and man, what a it's rich, what a sweet start yesterday to start with the Lord's Supper and the music of the season and all of the gifted, talented people and you know um, people in Bible study and beginning to focus on the birth of Christ. It was, it was, it was a great start. So I'm, I'm very encouraged and excited about this particular Advent season. So me too. Me anyway. too. So one of the things that I think is really special about Advent is not just that it's pointing us towards the Christmas and the coming that happened mm -hmm. when Christ came the first time. It mm -hmm. also is pointing us towards the second coming. Correct. We don't always necessarily think about the second coming when mm -hmm. we think about the first coming. Right. But in Advent and Advent theology, those are themes that are married together. Correct. We kind of 
push ourselves back in time, so to speak, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and anticipate the first coming of Christ all the while remembering mm-hmm. that he's actually coming again. That's right. And so you use this term a lot, inaugurated eschatology. Mm-hmm. You didn't use it specifically right. yesterday, but mm-hmm. for those with ears to hear, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> the themes were there. Right. So the age to come invading this present evil age. I mean, that's what inaugurated eschatology is all about. And uh, I mean, to me, I feel like we got the idea from Jesus, you know, where Jesus so. says, uh, you know, eat this bread, drink this wine and proclaim the Lord's death. Paul says that you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's this idea that we're living in this now and not yet already, mm-hmm. this this kingdom reality. And so um, I'm, I believe that Advent um, and celebrating the Lord's Supper, both of those to me, connect us to that idea of inaugurated eschatology. So I believe that the kingdom of God that um, Jesus came to establish when he's resurrected from the dead, I mean, the whole ministry of Jesus is connected to it, obviously. I mean, how many times does he say the kingdom of God is like this? Look, there's the kingdom of God. Yeah, and it's so, at hand. Yeah, it's right here. And so it's near. It's in you. So um, I'm, I'm convinced that Jesus established the kingdom of God, told us to pray, that God's will would be done on earth just like it's done in heaven. Well, the only way for that to happen is for that to be a kingdom reality. And I believe the church is the agent of the kingdom, if you will, the instrument of God to be used to extend the kingdom of God. And so, um, yeah, I, I believe that the kingdom of God was established by Jesus. And what, to me, what really sealed that for me theologically is the resurrection of Christ. It's almost like a um, he, he gave us this first, he gave us the teachings to go with it, Here's how you live in it. Let me show it to you. And I'll give you glimpses, you know, okay? There'll be, once the kingdom of God's consummated, there will be no more blind people. There'll be no more deaf people. Mm-hmm. Death will be um, ended. And so Jesus gives us a glimpse, obviously. You know, he'll raise somebody from the dead or he'll heal a blind person or uh, a deaf person. And it's almost like, well there's, the, well, there's the kingdom breaking in. And then when he's resurrected from the dead, well, that that really signals this is a new era. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's and then like, it breaks through in the early church. Yes. Yeah. And so to me, the kingdom of God was established by Jesus. And so that um, age that is to come, which is the way I read the scripture, I think the scripture has the world divided into those two ages, the present evil age, age to come. And so I think the age to come has already begun. Not fully consummated. I mean, my goodness. Right. Some the, one theologian has compared in talking about inaugurated eschatology. The image that they give is it's like Jesus's death and resurrection is D Day. So if you think about World World War II, D Day right. is the decisive battle mm-hmm. in Europe. But after D Day, there's still a lot of battles to be fought. Mm-hmm. It's not over. That's right. The final consummation is VE Day. It's the end of the war. Right. So we are living in the time between D Day and V Day. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And I I just. I love that because um, I think it gives appropriate uh, credit to what Jesus did. I also think that it invites the church to live into that era yes. fully and recognize our responsibility in it. That's why I like Eugene Peterson's image that we're practicing resurrection already. Mm-hmm. We're, we're already learning how to live in that new age because right. that's really our home. Yeah. That, that new age is our home. You know, we're... We're we're it's almost like the Lord designed us for this present evil age. We have to live in it, but but the real genius of his design is for that age that is to come. And we get glimpses of it already. And so I love that. And and Advent to me is a great time to be reminded of that. And so and then so here we are in somewhat of an eschatological moment, I think. And look at our world. 
I mean, the Prince of Peace has come. And right now, the last thing we're experiencing in our society, uh, pretty much across the world, is peace. You know, it's 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 this, hard to find. This is a disruptive era, you know, um, and it obviously it's brought into our homes. Um, you can't help yourself, you know, as, as you're watching the news or, you know, however you get your news, whatever that means. You'd have to work really hard to actually avoid knowing what's going on in the world. Exactly. Where, where do you find peace? Well, um, we pray for the, you know, um, the peace that God offered us to, to be extended to the world. And I look at my world today and pick, pick a spot on planet Earth. I mean, Asia, Europe, um, Central America, South America. Political tension in the uh, United Africa, States, in the, in the U.S., the climate in the U.S. That's that's just it's just filled with so much rancor and cynicism and anger. And that that's one of the things I was trying to say yesterday. I think it's a little bit interesting when I got home yesterday after my sermon. You know, I had this quote in my sermon Sunday. You know, the world has enough angry Christians, and I said, so if you're one of them, we'll just keep your mouth shut. I almost feel like I was angry in saying that to angry Christians. <laughs> so <laughs> I feel like mine was more righteous indignation. <laughs> but, um, but right now it, it was seems passion. like the, yeah, the angry voices from the extremes and, and pick a topic, that's just rises to the top right now. And it's like, everybody's mad about something, you know, there just seems to be this, this bitterness and rage and frustration just below the surface all the time in almost every arena, you know? Um, and it's not just, it's not just Israel. I mean, it, it is Israel. I mean, when you, when you watch the, what's happening and unfolding in Israel, you know, I've, I've been around longer than you. And so I've been watching this my whole life, mm -hmm. you know, my entire life. Um, there, it, all it takes is a little bit and get it. I, I get it. Trust me. I do not in any way minimize the atrocities that have been, um, you know, placed upon people there. It's, it's, uh, I mean, it's egregious. Um, but sometimes it doesn't even take the atrocity at the level of this last incident for there just to be emotions to boil over. It can be something really small because it just lives below the surface all the time. And, um, and, you know, I'm old enough to remember the Soviet Union and all that took place there and some of the oppression people felt. And when that starts to break apart, just the passion that rose up within so many people and the frustration years of, of being mm. shackled by something um, and how all that played out. And then the response, you know, in anger, which we're seeing today in the Ukraine. I mean, you see the response of Russia now. There's this, um, there's this, this um, blowback, if you will. And it's just laced with anger. And then in my own country, when's the last time that we heard a, uh, a passionate politician on the national level speak without an angry voice. I mean, I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe I've a just, long time. Maybe I've just missed it. <laughs> um, and so, I guess I look at it, Luke, and I think, okay, I believe the kingdom of God is here, and I believe the church has a responsibility to help extend the reality of the kingdom. And I just don't believe that anger and exertion of earthly power. Is how you do it. That is not how Jesus did it. No, it's certainly not. You know, um, and he could have. I mean, it's it's he, part of the he, temptation he, of Christ. He, of course, he could have. It's how the devil wanted Jesus to go about <laughs> right. things, but he didn't. He chose different means and different methods. There's a great humility in Jesus, and great servanthood in Jesus, and great joy in Jesus. 
And I just believe that the church has to capture that for this era. Jesus, people should be like Jesus. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> That'd be a great way to put it. <laughs> if you're going to follow the Jesus way, I think for many of us through the years, we we reduced the Jesus way, if I can say that politely, to just being the way to get to heaven, to get into the presence of God. But actually, the Jesus way is actually the way. It is it is it's the way of life for the Jesus people. It's it's heaven on earth, if you will. It's it's already a reality for us. And so that's yeah. what I'm trying to help us capture is what does that look like today yeah. in this era? And I think we're struggling with it a little bit right now. I don't I don't mean just us as a church. I mean just in general. I think the evangelical Christianity uh, is in kind of an identity crisis right now. You know, you know, when I was a kid, Luke, if if you wanted to know um, when I was growing up, and and I'd say into my early adulthood, if if you wanted to know what evangelical Christians, so to speak, believed, you had a couple of voices that everybody just went to. Now there was a debate when I was in seminary. In fact, there was an entire uh, class, are Baptist evangelicals? And the answer was no, because we viewed the Baptist theologians said evangelicals are more fundamentalists, if you will. But in all honesty, though, Billy Graham was kind of the voice of it. He was the face of evangelicalism. You know, you would hear, and Billy Graham was, now when he was younger, he was pretty fiery. But as he got older, he, he had that um, genteel, um, holistic, uh, non-compromising way of sharing truth. Mm. But I can remember one time when he got older, someone asking the question, I was watching some show about evangelicalism. They said, well, who's going to take Billy Graham's place? And I remember thinking, mm, I don't think anybody. <laughs> that, was a, that was a person for a moment that God used tremendously and is still using. Um, he's kind of like um, Abel. Even though he's dead, he still speaks. But it's just different. There is no face of evangelicalism today. There, mm -hmm. there is no single voice. It's not that singular anymore. It's not that homogenous. So there's somewhat of an identity crisis, I believe, in it. And so I, I sense that. And so to me, what I want to try to help lead is to capture our little part of that as a church and live as best we can into it. And it has an eschatological feel. It has an evangelistic yeah. component that to me can't be laced with anger and judgment. Right. One of the things I've thought about as I think about our culture we live in a hopeless, not just a peaceless, but a hopeless time. And there's a theologian named Jürgen Moltmann. He's German, uh, but he wrote a book called Theology of Hope. Mm -hmm. And kind of the main point is it's actually this hope that we have. And hope is not a feeble, fickle little right. thing. It's actually a transformative, powerful force. And it's mm -hmm. our hope in what Christ actually already has accomplished. Right. That future that God is calling us to is actually pulling us forward and as we are getting pulled forward, we should be transforming the present world that we live in. Mm -hmm. um, it's very optimistic. It is. Um, but but I would say biblically, theologically rooted argument yeah. um, from Moltmann. I've, I've always appreciated that yeah. argument. Your hope is not just this, I'll fly away one day. <laughs> <Right>. It's, <laughs> yeah. I have hope in Jesus, and that enables me, empowers me through the Holy Spirit to live dynamically in the mm -hmm. world today mm -hmm. and to share that hope. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, think, and I think one of the challenges that we now face is that this message from Paul that I preached on Sunday morning, Christ is in you, it's the hope of glory. And I think that is connected to Moltmann's idea that the reason it's a reality is because of the power of Christ. I mean, the power of Christ is on display 
you know, Paul says from the very beginning, you know, that that the Son is there in the beginning. He is before all things. That's why I'm convinced this is Paul's prologue, as I talked about Sunday, kind of his answer to John's prologue is what I would say. And But now the question is, how do we share that news yeah. with this culture? Because Paul says he did this. Here's how he made peace through his blood shed on the cross. So Paul calls the atonement into this conversation. That, he does. This glorification of Christ, if you will, this this majestic portrait of the Son of God. And then Paul says, well, now let me make sure that you know the, the majesty of Christ is revealed in creation, but the majesty of the Son of God is also revealed at Calvary <laughs> mm-hmm. through his shed blood on the cross. Well, how does how do we translate the shed blood of Jesus on the cross to this day and age? Yeah. You know, we were talking about this before we started recording. You know, how, how do you communicate that evangelistically now? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Yeah. What's, what's the answer for that in 2023? Yeah. You know, um, and I mean that respectfully. I'm not saying that the answer changes, but I do think we have to think about it maybe differently. Yeah. And one of the ways that you know we, we talk about how we do this, it's not that you're changing the gospel. Of it's, course. We have four different gospels. There are four different right. portrayals of Christ. That's right. And there are equally truthful ways mm-hmm. of actually sharing the story of Christ mm-hmm. that have different theological and cultural emphases. We're mm-hmm. not changing the message. Right. Uh, there's a missiologist who would talk about, you know, the gospel is like water in a container. It's still water. Yeah. But it's go, it changes it changes shape mm-hmm. for culture. Mm-hmm. It's it hasn't chemically changed. It stays the same. Right. But it's just a different shape. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that we've talked about before we started is we live in an age that actually there's very little personal guilt. Right. As a framework. I would I would <laughs> argue fascinating. Even for some Christians, <laughs> yeah. we many of us actually forget about our personal guilt, That's our right. personal sin. Mm-hmm. We, we, mm-hmm. what, there's no overarching morality mm-hmm. for culture anymore. Mm-hmm. And so how do you share a message about sin and guilt mm-hmm. in a guiltless, sinless? Correct. I don't think this age is guiltless. Right. I don't think this age right. is sinless. But, it, the, but I think many individuals in this era believe that about themselves. Yeah. They don't feel guilty necessarily. Personal moral responsibility to something bigger than yourself does not exist. Yeah, there's not a transcendent reality in your life. A perceived transcendent reality. Then we believe we believe reality. But if your view is there's not one, well then what what's the standard? What is the what's the measuring stick, if you will? So in other words, if you say, Well, that's just wrong, well, how do you from from what angle? From whose <laughs> you know, perspective? If there's not some ultimate transcendent reality of perfection. And um, I think you're right. It's interesting to me. I, but I, I would say this about the culture, though. I think that this culture knows the world is broken, though. Absolutely. So that, to me, may be the direction we need to go in terms of evangelism, is is addressing the brokenness of the culture. Because if you don't believe you're sinful— then you share no guilt in it. Then why would Jesus need to pay for your sins on the cross if you don't believe that you bear any responsibility for that? Yeah. And you know, I, when we were at the at the park the other day, I overheard one of these uh, Muslim uh, who Muslim man. I mentioned it before. Who was proselytizing? Cindy actually talked to him about this. I just overheard him, not with her, but she mentioned it to me. He said something like. Why, why would you believe 
that God would come as a human being and would have to die for you. That, that just makes no sense in my worldview. And so Cindy's argument took on, this is what she told me, I didn't hear it, but it took on the form of what you and I just talked about. Cindy said, well, let's just talk about the brokenness in the world. Surely you acknowledge there's brokenness in the world. Well, that led this guy to a little bit of a different conversation, but the whole idea of personal guilt, even though as a Muslim, he just said, I don't, I don't have to have someone die for me. That there's, there is no need for that. That is, that is a, a misunderstanding theologically that all Christians have. Right. So even if theologically you believe in a transcendent reality, but you have no concept of personal guilt or responsibility that requires your debt being erased, so to speak, that somehow or another it being accounted for, well, then the shed blood of Jesus, which Paul puts in this majestic poem about Jesus, how does that become relevant? Right. And just in case you think this is a brand new conversation, any time that Christians have traveled around the world to share yes. the gospel, this is something they've had to work exact through. So, for example, the first time the gospel went to China, <laughs> yeah. they had to work through this because personal sin, personal guilt mm -hmm. doesn't exist in most Asian honor-shame-based right. cultures. Right. It's all about collectivism. Yeah, it's not about communal. you as the individual. Mm -hmm. It's a, it can't. And if it is about you as the individual, it's what you have done as an individual to disgrace the collective. Right. And so when Christians first encountered Chinese culture, they had to do this reassessing mm -hmm. of, mm -hmm. well, how do we actually communicate the truth of Christ, mm -hmm. what he's done and who he is mm -hmm. in a culture that doesn't actually talk about personal moral responsibility? Right. And when you think about how that's transpired, even in our culture, the individualism in America that we do that we are very proud of. We, we kind of take it as kind of our contribution to the world that you're, you're an individual, you're responsible for yourself, you raise yourself up by your own bootstraps. I mean, that American work ethic, mm -hmm. it's on you. All that played well, you know, I would say for a season. There's still some value in it, obviously. I believe that. But now we're watching it go to the extreme. You yeah. know, when you, when, when you talk about the triumph of the self, well, now it's like, well, now the self has risen so high We've overcome the the need to respond to anything that the self is us. the greatest good. It is the greatest good in and our so culture. It's like self actualization now has become the panacea, and so here we are preaching the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, which I believe in, and I believe is taught fully in the Scripture. Mm -hmm. um, but the atonement, which is the whole idea of why Jesus died. Just for those of you that may not know this, theologians have addressed the atonement for centuries. And we have basically landed on the idea. Now, some theologians only want one thread, but there are multiple threads that make up the fabric of the atonement. And trying to decide which one is most effective for the era in which you live is what I think we have to grapple with. Yeah. You know, so which one's the most effective now? And I have an opinion. I can't, you know, <coughs> I have thoughts. <laughs> I'm sitting here with a millennial who has an opinion, and he's talking to a baby boomer who is always right. So this is it's a fascinating conversation. And we're being... I'm thinking the, we're, being, we're being filmed by... Um, uh, what is it? Gen Z? Gen A? Gen what is Z. Addison? Gen Z? She sorry. had a great contribution to this conversation <laughs> before it came. Um, Addison, <clears throat> we could have just pulled up a microphone. We could have. Mm -hmm. um, but so one of those theories, you mentioned the penal substitutionary. Mm -hmm. Another theory of the atonement that was, I think, more common, especially in the early church 
in a more pagan era is called the Christus Victor mm-hmm. theory of the atonement. Christ is mm-hmm. victorious. That's what right. that roughly translates to. Mm-hmm. And it's that humanity is trapped under the weight of evil and sin. Those are active entities. They are the powers of this world, and we're trapped under them. Mm-hmm. What Christ does on the cross is he comes and is victorious over the powers of sin, evil, and death, which mm-hmm. are these cosmic realities, which mm-hmm. is a biblical theme. Mm-hmm. Christ is Paul victorious presents over them. a cosmic Christ in Colossians. He does. Mm-hmm. And so Christ comes to save us and to free us from those powers. Mm-hmm. And so there are times I've wondered if in our gospel presentation, what's more needed in this culture, in this age, in our time and place is a Christus Victor mm-hmm. representation of the gospel. So it's, mm-hmm. hey, do you believe that the world is broken right. and failing? <laughs> Are, do you mm-hmm. see evil everywhere you look? Do you see the rage in our culture? We're actually trapped mm-hmm. in these realities. Mm-hmm. But there's and, actually someone who's come to free us right. and set us free from the enslavement of those realities. And I, and I think I, I think there's something to that, Luke, because I, I believe you're right. If you want to connect with people, um, sure, there's no question that connecting to your own personal sinfulness, it does work. We have to trust the Holy Spirit to convict people. Absolutely. Of sin. You know, we, we don't do that. The Spirit of God does that. And I think after a lot of reflection, um, people will own up to it. That's what I think. But But to get the bridge there, you know, if you're building bridges evangelistically, Paul does that. I mean, Paul is writing, just in the example Sunday morning, the church at Colossae evidently was embroiled in some type of philosophical conversation about reality. You know, what's the ultimate reality? And um, and so John, I mean, Paul is there in jail in Rome, and it sounds like Epaphras is there with him, who evidently is one of the founders of the church at Colossae, and he must be hearing from them. And so he's talking with Paul well, Paul's the most famous Christian alive at this point, probably. You know, maybe Peter's still alive. So, but these two men are kind of the mm-hmm. stat poles, if you will, of Christianity. Well, and John, but John is—we're not really sure where John is at this point. So, if you put those three men together, they're they're the most influential Christians on the planet in those days. And so, I'm sure Epaphras is probably asking Paul, "How do you, how do you combat? How do you speak to this?" You know. And so, when Paul writes Colossians, he doesn't write Philippians. No. You know, that's not what he does. You read Philippians, it's a whole different tenor and tone to a church that Paul knew and loved that had been supportive of him. He writes Colossians and he starts off with this the power of the gospel and the majesty of Christ. And he ties it to the atonement, but the atonement is tied more to the um the glory of Christ and the Son of God, who's the creator of all that is, the creative agent, if you will, of the Trinity. And so there's that <clears throat> I think it's a Kurt, is it Kurt Alland that I think he's the theologian talks a lot about Christus Victor. There are a number of theologians that do. But anyway, this idea that there is this victorious Son of God who came to this earth and humbled himself, obviously, shed blood on the cross, but it it has this sense of addressing more than just your own personal brokenness. It addresses just the brokenness of society, which goes back to the establishment of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And so... I think that what we have to do is um, we have to be smart enough to find the inroads to the gospel in our era. That that's our responsibility, and we have to we have to accommodate in a sense the conversation without, like you said, you don't change the gospel. None, none of us would advocate that. But I would say that packaging the gospel, if you want to use that phrase, or putting it in a in a in a, a way to where you can build bridges to lead people 
to give the Holy Spirit a chance to lead people to that sense of personal responsibility. I do right. believe that's our job. I do too. <clears throat> and so I would just say to our people, um, think about that. Think about think about your neighbors, your friends that you know are not churched people. Um, what is it that what what is it that truly would compel them to even think about all of this? Um I I do think a path would be a conversation about how broken our world is. And what's the answer? I mean, think about it. Um, I would say this, look, another piece to that conversation is, do you believe we are the answer to it? We're, it's 2023. We have okay. not figured this out yet. Right. Are we the answer? Um, just pick. look at Israel, look at the Ukraine, look at North Korea and South Korea. These are all Koreans. And I'm not picking on the Koreans. I'm just saying, though, this is a you know that's a pretty um, homogenous culture, I would say Korea is. And North and South Korea have a line of demarcation, and and have completely different perspectives, and um, it's it's broken, you know. I mean, um, and so so are are we the answer? Have have we come up with a way to address? What is so broken? Um, well, no, we haven't. So, okay, would you be willing to entertain the idea that maybe someone else could offer us some hope in this? What about the one that God chose to send? So right. I think there are, there are paths to this, but I think you're right. I think if you start today, at least in some generations for sure in, in our culture, with personal sin and um, that conversation about personal responsibility you know, it may shut down quickly. The Holy know. Spirit may still work. Of course. But it may not be your best foot forward. Yeah, yeah. And depending on the relationship. But I think it's, you know, we, we used that imagery last week about fishing. Um, well, you know, you're casting nets. We do that together. But there's also the idea that you, you get as much in the water as you can. Yes. <laughs> you know, get, get as many hooks in the water as you can. And let's just keep fishing, you know. Um, like I, I go, uh, I do... The one type of fishing I enjoy, so it's the only really type of fishing I like, is trout fishing. And I'm not very good at it. I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a novice fly fisherman. Mike Steiger, who's a good friend of mine, Mike has taken me to, um, he has a place in Colorado. He is the one who taught me how to trout, how to fly fish. And what I love about fly fishing is it's got athleticism to it. You know, you, mm -hmm. you, you, you have to, you have to. I'm taking your word for it. Yeah, you yeah. have to be deft. You've got to learn how to cast this fly and and it's uh, and it's really light, you know, and so the line is really light. And so it's not like just throwing a lure up out in the water. It's very different than that. And plus you have to get out in, typically you're out in the water, you're in the elements and you're in these mountain streams. It's Even if you don't catch a fish, it's beautiful and fun and challenging. But man, when you catch one, trout are fun. Even the small trout, they'll jump out of the water, you know, and I mean, it's just a lot of fun. But what's funny about Steiger is you can be fishing with Steiger, and he'll find he'll come to me and he'll go, "All right, Dennis, this this right here, not, let's get rid of this fly. This is not working. I mean, you've you've cast it fifteen times. It's obviously not working. Let's pick something else. Let's let's go to a different spot. Let's put a different weight. Let's fish at a different level. I mean, he's constantly evaluating. All right, that's not working. Sometimes it does work, or obviously we wouldn't have it. And, you know, right. as you could say, why do you have this fly? <laughs> you know, if if it's not working, well, it's worked many times. I've caught a lot of fish on it. Just not today. But so instead of keep hammering it, guess what we're going to do? We're going to fish at another level. We're going to change the, you know, the, the bait, if you will. Well, that's our job, Luke, in my opinion. We're going to be adaptable. Yeah, we got to be thoughtful. It doesn't mean we're quit fishing. 
No. We keep fishing. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? But maybe we have to change a little bit uh, our approaches to it. And I would I would just say during Christmas, um, what a what an opportunity. You know, um, I've just I've just finished videoing with Addison today, a, a video for why does it matter.org. That website's going to change a little bit. Historically, we've had videos on that website for Easter. But well, now we're about we're beginning to populate it at least with some Christmas messages, and so at some point we're going to make that available to the church, and that's even something you can invite people to. You know, mm-hmm. have you ever thought about what Christmas is? Well, you know, our, uh, you can go to this website called WhyDoesItMatter.org, and there'll be a, 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 a synopsis of why this matters. So there are so many ways to do this in conversations with people, and we as a church, our job, I believe, is to help equip our people with the right resources to where we can share this gospel effectively. And, um, and I think you do a really good job of that. And we're, tr- we're only trying to get better at it. And so anyway, well, thank you. So there you go. It's just a few things. Look at us. Advent podcast video. Christmas is what coming. is happening to me. It's what I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome though. I love it. it. Is. Well, so we're glad that you listened and we hope that it was a helpful episode for you. Mm-hmm. There is so much mm. going on in the life of our church mm-hmm. this month. Mm-hmm. If you have not thought about it yet, I would encourage you to look at the calendar of events we have going on. Mm-hmm. I believe you can go to fbca.org slash Christmas, and mm-hmm. I think it's all there. Mm-hmm. But look through those events and think through the people in your life, especially those people who aren't part of a church, mm-hmm. and pick an event to invite those people to. That's right. Um, people are more spiritually open this time of year than really any other mm-hmm. And they are more open to exploring church and Christianity and just kind of doing things around right. Christmas. Mm-hmm. So invite people. They are open. They are curious. And they are willing to come to church for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll be here. And we, we will meet them with love and the gospel. Well, awesome. Thank you, Luke. Thanks all. Mm-hmm.